Blog Talk Radio. Thank you. 
or tune in or call in by calling 323-679-0841 or go online. That's So come and call your friend, tell them to join us tonight. Like always, we're going to speak truth to power. So on that note, like always, our lineup will consist of what's going on in your world and the community, followed by the segment of the theme, what is it that you don't understand, and we have some important announcements and closing remarks. Again, we welcome you to call in and join us. So right now, you know how we do it. We start our party off with speaking to some of our political analysts and panelists for the day. So at this point in time, we will welcome Brother Haki to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Haki. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Tomafi Mishoki, currently with African Awareness, and I'm all about institution building. Uh, one of the things why I feel institutions are extremely important, I recently read an article on the the uh the question around you know what is what is human rights what is spanish uh, one of the things recently that occurred uh, the US government revoked the visa of an international criminal court uh, chief prosecutor her name was Fatar Pensada uh she was interested in investing in US for uh war crimes committed in Afghanistan well, this current Secretary of State, uh, Mike Pompeo, position was that there will be no investigation of war crimes in Afghanistan. His position was that uh, U.S. rule of law would not permit any kind of uh, any kind of uh, 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 look, look, looking into uh, U.S. Uh, involvement in terms of war crimes. It's very, very interesting that when he talks about you know, rule, the U.S. rule of law, what he's essentially saying is that the interest of U.S. Uh, supersedes any consideration like human rights, justice, or war crimes. And so the thing I think is important that we keep in mind uh, that if, in fact, the U.S. defines what, what, what law is, then when we look nationally or internally inside the United States, we look in terms of what it means in terms of the, the, the execution of laws. And clearly when we talk about things like um, you know, mass incarceration, uh, wage uh, disparity, uh, employment disparity, uh, police brutality inflicted against African people. So when we look at all of these inhumane and unjust uh, uh, issues impacting the African community, the question becomes, can we realistically expect the U.S. in terms of policy to actually formulate policy which is humane and just? History would suggest that when you look at the, the history of the United States, that if you seriously think that somehow politicians are going to bring about some redress in terms of the historical injustices, the inhumanity that inflicts African and working class people, then I think we're sadly mistaken. So given that backdrop, I think it's important to understand that if we're talking about limiting or at least minimizing these impacts of these barbaric uh, policies, then the one thing we have to do, we have to have institutions in terms of the very minimum in terms of protecting our children because the children are the future. So if we can get together to protect ourselves in terms of security, at the very minimum let us begin to work together in terms of creating new systems in this on an informal level in this community which protect our children and make it possible for them to thrive despite the kind of oppressive situation that African people find themselves confronted in America. So I think institutions are extremely important and we have to get busy in terms of institutions and uh, there's no other way around that. So but again, Brother Africa, I just want to thank you for having me on the program. Thank you, 
Malaki, Father Malaki. We now would like to welcome Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings uh, to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Okay. All right, gentlemen, let's get started with our first segment. What's going on in your world and community? Start off with you, Brother Haki. What's going on in your world and community? Yeah, I got a couple of things. First, um, first of all, African Awareness Association will travel the road of liberation and freedom to Cuba. We've been going to Guantanamo, Santiago de Cuba, and Havana. This trip takes place July 24th to July 31st. For more information, we ask people to call us at 202-714-9435 or email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, number two at gmail.com. We encourage people to go to Cuba first and see for themselves exactly why Cuba is doing such great things and why Cuba is, in fact, a symbol for the world in terms of uh, political systems uh, that benefits humanity, which creates a, a human being which is more humane, which creates a system which makes it possible for people, irrespective of so-called deficiencies, are in a position to actually learn. So Cuba has one of the highest literacy rates in the world. And uh, it has, uh, in terms of producing doctors, Cuba does an excellent job in terms of producing doctors and, and scientists the best in the world. So clearly uh, the system, uh, the institution in which we live, has a lot to do in terms of the kind of people that are produced. So I think it's important that we in, in America understand that the institutions uh, that govern our lives to a large extent determines how we behave, our, 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 our understanding in terms of education, our, our drive you know, to, to, to academic excellence and all those kind of things. So I think it's very, very important that we understand that. And then the second thing, Brother Africa, is that, you know, one of the things, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to read about, you know, one of the things that the Western media has been propagating for a long, long time was the notion that the yellow vest in, in France, uh, in fact, their movement is not particularly concerned with the aspirations of, uh, you know, the immigrants or North Africans who reside in France. Uh, of course, that uh, propaganda was debunked by the uh, yellow vest, and recently they had a, a uh, assembly, the entitled Assembly of Assemblies in which all participants, you know, throughout the country actually met and discussed the strategies and tactics they could employ in terms of furthering their movement. Uh, one of the things uh, they talked about, a couple of things they talked about that was important. They talked about the, the importance of avoiding politicians' attempt to co-opt the movement, which is very, very important. One of the things that we talked about last week, one of the things, inevitably, that they always do is that when they want to co-opt the movement, normally they pay people in terms of splitting that movement. And the Yellow Vest is very, very clear on that strategy, and so therefore they're devising ways to make sure that people understand that you know, don't allow yourself to be co-opted and not allow politicians to come in and take control of this movement. Also, they talked about, you know, vehemently holding to their demands. Those demands include ending structural in, 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 excuse me, inequality, living wages, restoration of social benefits, taxing the wealthy, and this one was equally important, which I earlier addressed, this whole question around the concerns in terms of immigrants and North Africans. Because this is really important, because one of the things when we talk about these movements, you know, we, we can't have a serious movement unless we're talking about the movement impact of lives of everybody who lives in a, in a country. So if you have a movement that's only geared toward a particular sector of society, then essentially what you're doing, 
is that you create, you make it possible for uh, those seeds of dissension, uh, those, those, those historical barriers that prevented people from working together in the first place, you simply make it possible for those seeds to continue to exist. So what you want to do is eradicate that kind of division that exists among people by incorporating everybody into this movement. And so the mere fact that the Yellow Vest understand that and specifically talk about the fact that they, they, they talk about issues concerning Africans and North African immigrants in, in, in French society in terms of historical wrongs that they, they've been confronted with. So clearly that the Yellow Vest is doing a good thing in terms of highlighting the importance in terms of incorporating everybody in that movement because there's an old Negro spiritual who says that unless all of us are free, none of us are free. So I think the Yellow Vest understands that, and they, when they had the discussion, that was brought out. So I think it's problematic for the Western media now they got to come up with some way in terms of, you know, undermining the the the, the, Johnson, the Yellow Vest movement. So I think by making these kind of statements very, very clear, it makes it that much more difficult for Western powers, in particular the media, to sort of undermine the movement that's happening in France. So I'm very happy to see that. I just want to raise that. Okay, Brother Hackey, we'll come back to some of the things you raised during the segment. We now go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's happening in your world and community? Okay, um, I have a, a couple of things. Um, first of all, uh, the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, is organizing African Liberation Day and Palestine Day 2019. Uh, our theme this year is Generations of Resistance and Revolts, Rebellions, and Revolutions as il- Illuminated in Cuba, Haiti, Libya, Palestine and Venezuela smash the repression industrial complex worldwide remembering and honoring the birthdays of Ho Chi Minh and Malcolm X Saturday May 18th 2018 from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time U.S. uh, It'll be a Pan-African and International Revolutionary Broadcast Symposium uh, listen or call 202-239-2676. Uh, the link will be announced soon. Uh, RSVP to ALD at A-APRP-GC.org. For more information, please contact us at 202-239-2676. Also, uh, uh, let's see, one of the effects of gentrification in the D.C. area is that, uh, is that some of the, uh, uh, the Europeans that are moving uh, in around the Howard University area are treating uh, Howard University's uh, property as a dog park. And um, you know the implications are are, are very uh, unhelpful for conditions for the uh, uh, for the students and faculty at at the university, as well as a a, a show of uh, disrespect of African institutions that exist, you know, in the you know in the in the D.C. area. And uh, as an as an alumnus of uh, this uh, institution, you know that uh, I, I found I, I found that particularly disturbing uh, develop uh, 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 disturbing development. 
Uh, also, uh, there is an attempt by the uh, opposition in Venezuela to try to seize the Venezuelan embassy in D.C. Uh, next week, uh, somewhere around the uh, 24th. Uh, and uh, there is a movement uh, being organized to uh, prevent uh, the, the takeover of the Venezuelan embassy by the Venezuelan opposition uh, from the legitimate elected government of Venezuela, uh, led by Nicolas Maduro. Okay, thank you, Brother Anthony, to our listening audience. You're listening to Africa on the Move. We're in that segment discussing what's going on in your world community. You have any comments or you'd like to share what's going on in your world and your community, feel free to call us at 323-679-0841 and hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. If you have any comments or questions you'd like to ask, please hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Going back to you, Brother Hackey. I thought it would be interesting, too, this week as I watch how this um, event is being played out. As it relates to in Paris, to um, Cathedral, um, being caught on fire, and the response of the amount of monies that poured in. I think less than one week they raised something that close to a billion dollars to help fix the Cathedral. And the workers inside of France, and Paris in particular, raised the question of, What's up with the wealthy folks giving so much money or have money to allocate to the church, but no money for the government nor them to allocate for meeting their basic needs? And, matter of fact, they've been riding for a while. So what you make about what you make to that, that kind of response? Because it seems like those kind of responses should be automatic throughout all these countries where you can see the appropriation of the monies are spent on things that are less important to people's lives. And at the same time, people are justified why they can, why they don't deal with human needs, but they can deal with needs that are not really that important in terms of the needs of the human. So your just response to that phenomenon, Brother Hackey and Anthony. Yeah, well, well I, I think you're right, Brother Africa. I think one of the things that when we talk about this war of attrition against poor people, against working people in societies around the world, then they understand that the wealthy are very, very organized, and everything they do, it's for their strategic benefits. You do nothing because of, because of interests of humanity. It's all about strategic benefits. And so we talk about the large sums of, of capital flowing into build, rebuilding the cathedral in France. It speaks values in terms of history. So when we talk about symbolism, it's important we understand that that symbolism represents, you know, the, the you know the Western you know the, the Western the Western world. And so for them, what they see it as a as a, as a Western symbol being under attack. And so, therefore, them, it's important that those Western symbols continue to have legitimacy because it's, it simply shapes, to some extent, it shapes a narrative in terms of what it is in terms of the Western world. And so, as, so as a symbol, it's very, very important, which explains why all that money is coming from all over the world to rebuild that cathedral. Uh, clearly, when you talk about the kind of um, 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 uh, response to a human need, uh, simply, you're right, Brother Africa, the, uh, the outpouring of funds is simply not there, and the question becomes, why is that? Well, you know, so it seems to me it's incumbent upon the working people, African and or working class people, it's incumbent upon them to understand the inherent contradictions when you start talking about money for everything else but no money for the human needs. 
And so unless you're willing to organize and fight for it, it's not going to come. Because keep in mind, it serves no strategic needs to the wealthy to actually uh, create a scenario where poor people have everything they need in terms of the, the drive. Uh, as a matter of fact, on the contrary, the less people have in terms of access to resources, they have access to education or access to housing, then it more easily are controlled. So there is a perverted uh, desire among those conditions of power to make sure uh, that in order for them to maintain their power and control, that you have to impoverish, you have to penalize, you have to make suffer the masses of people, you know, who uh, live in these countries. And so this is why it's so important that we do find movements around the world in which people actually begin to understand the hypocrisy in terms of these movements, in terms of the disparity, in terms of financing, uh, when it comes to human needs. And it's important that we, 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 we support, we salute these movements around the world, which recognize the fundamental disparity in terms of money, you know, for everything else, but no money for people. So that's very important. But keep in mind, we, have, we can't lose sight of the fact that this is all part of a broader strategy. And so why would the U.S. be concerned about cathedral in France? Why would the Spaniards be concerned about a cathedral in France? Why would, they, why would Yugoslavia be concerned about uh, a, 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 a cathedral in France? Uh, why is the Germans concerned about it? Why are they concerned about it in, the, in, the, in the El Salvador or wherever? So the question is, you know, we have to understand that this is part of a broader strategy about the wealthy. And so those who don't think that we're at war, it's time to reappraise that position and begin to understand that, in fact, you are at war. And if, you, and if you're at war, then you've got to understand that you not only have to take a side, but strategically you have to form a strategy and tactic in terms of waging that war. Because otherwise, you'll simply render yourself defenseless, which means that the wealthy win, and we can't allow that. So we have to continue to struggle, and people who are not involved, people on the sideline, how to get involved in the struggle because it's in their own best interest to get do so. Brother Anthony, you want to check on this phenomenon in Paris? Yes. Um, I concur with all the points uh, Haki made. I would add that the wealth, the resources to uh, uh, that, the, that, that the wealth that contributed toward the rebuilding of that cathedral was what 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 was earned was uh, stolen uh, uh, was stolen was made off the backs of the uh, of the masses of working people. The uh, uh, the wealthy get their that that their wealth by controlling the ownership of the productive process. They can they they control that and they don't contribute. Uh, to the productive process, but they can, but they they own it. That is the nature of capitalism and imperialism. And uh, so it is actually the resources that are produced by the people that are being uh, that, that 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 are being taken away from them and allocated toward things uh, that keep uh, the rich happy and satisfied. And. Uh, and that's the danger, and I think that's what people have to understand, that that the wealthy get their wealth by exploiting the poor, uh, exploiting the working masses and taking the fruits of their labor in order to enrich themselves. And, and, let, us, and let us not forget, Brother Africa, the churches in, 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 in evolution of the West played a big role in terms of exploitation of human beings. They played a big role. Uh, you know, one of the things when we talked about in terms of the work of labor, uh, what, you know, to a large extent, 
churches in the West decided in terms of what that value would be worth. And so, therefore, the control of that labor uh, was pretty much a, a, one of the components in terms of the running or, or, or the, one of the features of, of, the, of the churches. And so churches have a prominent role in terms of this whole uh, notion of exploitation that we currently find ourselves confronted with even today. And so, therefore, then you have to understand that this history in terms of the role of churches in terms of making it possible for the wealthy to exploit the poor uh, was by and large something that was advocated by the churches. Now, you do have uh, people like, uh, like the current pope uh, who's doing a masterful job in terms of laying out, you know, the real, the real inequities that exist in society and talk about the inequalities that pervade every society in terms of the wealth uh, propensity to brutalize and to undermine and to use poor people. So you do have someone in the church who's actually standing up and saying it's wrong, but he is, you know, but he is an exception rather than a rule. In fact, one of the things that's happening in terms of him, uh, there is people like um, Steve Bannon, a uh, former uh, aide to, uh, to Donald Trump. He's setting up these right-wing organizations, these, these right-wing infrastructure in Europe, for the sole purpose of taking on the Pope. In other words, they want to make damn sure that there'll be no leader who rises in, in the church who's going to advocate for the masses of poor people around the world. And so, therefore, in order to make that possible, they have to create the sector correct conditions to make sure that not only when it comes to selecting uh, uh, popes, uh, one who's so, quote, unquote, liberal would never come to power. But if he does manage to squeak through that, squeak through that process, he'll make sure that he's, he, he or she, well, he, is essentially hemmed in in terms of possibly, you know, addressing any issues that pertains to poor people. So clearly, uh, the role that churches played in terms of facilitating this, uh, this uh, exploitation of human beings is something that churches played a prominent role in. And so, therefore, then you can understand why the welfare would, in fact, uh, support the church throughout the world, why they're sending huge sums of money, I mean, billions of dollars, to renovate that church. And that's precisely why, because they understand that not only the church's story was important in terms of creating the parameters for exploitation of human beings, but the churches, even today in the 21st century, are still, by and large, responsible for creating the conditions to ensure the exploitation of human beings. So clearly, their 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 interest lies in having such a, such churches exist because it simply serves the interests of the powerful uh, and the wealthy to have churches to, to conveniently teach people to accept their own in, in impoverishment. Okay, let me just make this quick announcement right quick, and we'll come to Brother Anthony in terms of some of the issues he raised about what's going on in his world community. Um, but one of our political analysts and panelists, Brother Moses, if you're on the line, please make sure you get one so we can bring you in. Brother Robert Moses, if you're on the line, hit one. Thank you. Um, Brother Anthony, you know, you raised this issue about a problem has recently developed between residents who are moving into D.C. We're talking about European residents predominantly. They are moving to D.C. and they are taking their animals and pets and carrying them to Howard University campus and allow them to um, um, to relieve them. Relieve, yeah. Allow the animals to relieve themselves on the property. Now, we know there are many tactics that are used to force people out of their original neighborhoods. Um, sometimes they may bring the police, sometimes they bring the ATF. They bring all kinds of forces to find ways to justify displaced African people. Now, I'm just raising with you, theoretically, you can you maybe give me a take. Do you think this is something that's intentional, that they are doing in terms of trying to create a, a climate 
to try to find some kind of way where they can, some kind of way, um, if not remove Hubble from its location, or maybe find a way in which maybe they can change the content of Howell. Because I also notice as right now, Howell University has a large European student population now going to Howell. I mean, a large population. So what do you make of that kind of behavior attitude or why they are doing this? What's the motive behind this that you think? I think it's an effort, if not to force the campus to move, uh, is to change the composition of Howard. And um, Howard, uh, you know, just by way of background, was founded in 1867 and is still at that same, uh, you know, original location that it was when it was founded in 1867. It kind of like expanded over the decades and it displays some of the poorer Africans that lived around there, but uh, I, but 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 with the current uh, incursion of uh, of uh, of Europeans, I think it's a combination of things. I think I don't think it's accidental by any means. I think it's a I think it's an effort to try to, one to try to change the composition of uh, Howard's uh, campus as opposed to moving it. Uh, but also, uh, I think it's a reflection of the disrespect and low regard that Europeans have for African culture and uh, African institutions uh, generally. Uh, and this is reflected in, in the fact that whenever... Uh, when you know, whenever, when, when, whenever there were there the hostilities among Africans and Europeans, Europeans have historically damaged uh, you know African institutions such as churches, museums, etc. And uh, in order to drive Africans out of the area, and uh, this is not, uh, and this is not only in the case of. Uh, uh, you know, current gentrification, but also in the case of uh, when, whenever Africans manage to uh, accumulate property in certain areas that Europeans found desirable, whether it be in the South, uh, Central U.S., or 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 the, or the Western uh, U.S., uh, that the, uh, the, there's a systematic effort to drive Afri Africans away when Europeans want possession of that particular piece of land. Mm -hmm. And you'll take Brother Hackey, what you make up that behavior? President is going on Harvard University in relationship to new residents, European residents moving to Washington, D.C., and that behavioral in relationship with their animals to Howard. No, I think I think it sort of underscores what Brother Anthony says about the um, the callousness toward you know African institutions. Uh, I think to some extent one of the problems you know when we talk about liberalism versus conservative that when when you look at it the final analysis there's not a whole lot of difference between the two. Uh, one is just more brazen about in terms of the contempt, where the other one is much more secretive in terms of the contempt. So I think that when you have a situation where where people are using the the lawns of a university for you know for purposes of their dogs relieving themselves, I think speaks valiance in terms of the contempt that they have for African people, and so I think though uh, it's one of the ways in which they can convey that kind of contempt 
without, you know, any, any type of re- repercussions. Unless somebody, of course, steps to them and say, you know, why would you let the dog do that? You didn't realize this is a college campus. Why would you do that? You got a lot of students moving back and forth. Why would you allow your dog to leave yourself, you know, on these grounds? Uh, but other than that, there is no repercussions in terms of doing that. But I think for them on a the subconscious level, I think it's important, you know, as a way of saying to, to the African community, fuck you, you know, I'm going to do this. There's nothing you can do. And I don't think that's that's um, rhetorical. I think that's real in the minds of, of a lot of people, uh, a lot of white folks who live in who, who live in America. Uh, I think this this unforeseen this, this this war that we don't want to acknowledge that exists between the races. For, I, like, I hate using that term, but the Africa races, the races doesn't races doesn't exist. But for 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 matters of you trying to clarify, you know, the statement I'm making, I'm using this term races, even though I understand that the question this question around race doesn't exist. But in the context of people's understanding in terms of race, uh, clearly those individuals who are lighter skin, whose position is that African people have no means, have no institutions, have nothing of value that white folks are bound to respect. I think it's not only something that exists historically when we talk about judicial systems, but also when we talk about everyday life in terms of interaction between African and, 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 and white folks you know, in America. So I think it's fundamentally a problem. I think I, I think it's a come upon an African masses, you know, on the campuses when they see that, they'll confront them and say, What the hell are you doing? You know, take your damn dog elsewhere. This is this is a college campus. You know, this is not the place for your dog to leave him him or herself. So I think it's a come upon really uh, the, 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 the students themselves to to be uh, uh aggressive in terms of making sure, you know, that, that when they see this kind of thing to address it firsthand. I, I think other than that, I think we can anticipate this kind of thing continually happening. I don't see it abating one one iota. I think I concur and I think the problem is and and it's a historical problem. We are not organized uh uh to to, to, to defend ourselves or to protect our interests. And uh and uh you know these sort of things do not happen to a people that are organized. You don't hear about this sort of thing happening on the predominantly European campuses in areas such as Catholic University, American University, Georgetown, and GW. But uh, it seems to be uh, happening to Howard, and that, and I think what people exploit is the fact that Africans in general are very disorgan are very disorganized, and because of that. Uh, we're powerless, and uh, and uh, and until we get organized, and until we to to seize power over our lives, and that's what liberation is about is about the seizure of power, power to control our land base. Then we will we will be respected, but until but you, but you then we, we will continue disrespected. You know, let me let me just let me raise a bit of a side issue and around this question in terms of being powerless. <clears throat> One of the things is that you know we're we're not we're we're only powerless simply because of our frame of reference. Uh, we think as individuals, to the extent that we have inculcated, uh, we have accepted a lot of the the social programming, social and political programming that exists in society. We tend to see ourselves as individuals, and that's precisely what they want you to do. They want you to see yourself as an individual. And so your goal, your aim, your objectives, your, 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 your ultimate goal, everything about, the, about being an individual. Now, the problem with being an individual is that you can't really affect change. So when you look at the maneuvering of the wealthy, they do it as a group. They don't do it individually. They do it as a group. And, uh, and everything they do is buttressed by the group. 
And so for African people, the one of the things that we have to understand is that with, without that uh, collective understanding of the way the world works, there's no way possible conceivably for us to empower ourselves. And this is quite a central problem. So when we look at when we, so we look at these so-called black conservatives, and I hate to keep talking about these people because they irritate me to no end. But when you look at these so-called black conservatives, one of the things is that they elevate this whole thing in terms of individual to new art, to the extent that they're willing to to repeat a, a certain a certain mantra over and over again, even though it doesn't make sense. For example, I was watching a debate, and uh, one of the things uh, this, this this woman says, uh, she she talks about the fact, and I mentioned this last week. And she talks about the fact that the Southern strategy doesn't exist, that it is only an figment of the liberals' imagination. Well, the Southern strategy, this whole strategy in terms of, you know, uh, you know uh, 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 utilizing racism in a more scientific manner, is something that was created by Lee Atwater. Lee Atwater not only created it, but he actually coined the term the Southern strategy. So this notion in terms of politicians using, pitting, you know, white folks against African people it's a, it has a long history to it. And so even though he he created this, he innovated this term, he's the one who taught the politicians how to utilize social strategy, those black liberals say that it doesn't exist. Well, you can only say such bush, excuse me, you only can say such nonsense to the extent that your aspiration as an individual is more important to, to be empowered in the eyes of, of the powerful in the hopes that somehow that by saying what they want you to say that you're going to be rewarded financially. Because the individual individual pursuit outweighs the collective good, and so until we get out of that framework in terms of thinking individual and start thinking as a group, then they control us, and that's a simple, that's that's reality. And we can go throughout the world and we're looking in terms of individual mindset when it comes to African people. We're perhaps the only people who think in terms of individually because we're in program condition to think as such. And so on the continent, we got African leaders who think individually. They don't think of the, of the group. They don't, you know, they can care less as long as they're being, as long as they're making money, as long as they stay in the game, then that's all that's important. So they're willing to undermine their economy, undermine their people, uh, destroy their infrastructure for the sole purpose of reaping, you know, Western dollars. So this mindset of individualism, I think, is something that we have to, we have to, we have to, we have to combat. And the question is, how do we combat that? Uh, one of the things last week the brother talked about, the young brother talked about the fact that listen, you know, we talk, we we keep talking, we keep talking, we keep talking. Well, what, what the young brother have to understand, I didn't get a chance to respond to him, but what, we have, what he has to understand is that uh, the only thing you can do at this point in history is talk. You've got to get people to understand why it's a necessity in terms of having a certain framework, the understanding of history, and why that understanding of history makes it possible for you or other people who have an understanding of history. Until then, the only thing you can do is continue to talk until people begin to grasp what you're saying and begin to understand that, you know what, what these people saying is absolutely correct. I have to reframe. I have to retrain the way I think. I have to reject a lot of this conditioning. But first and foremost, they have to acknowledge this kind of condition exists in their minds. And once they acknowledge this kind of condition exists, then they can be empowered to move forward to change that kind of conditioning. But until we eradicate this mindset about this individual, then they can continue. They can continue to. They continue to to to, to manipulate us and exploit us. And this is the problem with our community. Two of us are thinking uh, individual, and this goes across the class sector. We're not just talking about wealth of middle-income African people. We're talking about even the poor and the poor in the African community who come from an individualist mindset. Even though I understand why poor people might adopt individualism, because you struggle with survival, you ain't got time to think about anything else other than your immediate survival. You know, you have to satisfy your immediate needs. So it doesn't give you time in terms of actually thinking abstract ideas. 
But there's certainly no no justification for college students coming out of these universities. I'm talking about African students coming out of the universities uh, or African students who have access to good jobs, making good money, or African students who have access to technology. There's certainly no reason at all for them not to understand the urgency in terms of uh, rebuking this whole nonsense around this individual mindset. Because if we don't, then clearly we're playing that. And one of the things that the ruling class counts on is the individual mindset. As long as we persist, as long as it continues to manifest itself, then we can be one, sure of one thing. This kind of exploitation, this ruthlessness uh, exacted toward the African masses will continue. And that's just a sad reality of it all. Okay, Brother Haki, what we're going to do right now, we're going to just call it. This call has been waiting for a while. We can go to call of 4324. Call of 4324. Welcome to Africa on the Move. Your question or comment, please. Good evening. This is Brother Moses. Hey, Brother Moses. How are you doing? Good, good. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I've had some logistical problems. I don't have my phone, and I, I've got this smartphone, but uh, it's too smart for me, so I'm having <laughs> <laughs> difficulties, uh, but uh, I've I've enjoyed listening so far. Um, um, the the situation at Howard University is is uh, one of of uh, disrespect for for the campus uh, by the by the people who uh, gentrified the community and they're bringing their pets on on to the campus and uh, and it's causing problems and uh, that's uh, that situation has to get resolved. Um, I'll just continue to listen for right now. Thank you. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about, after you raised earlier in your other aspect of what's going on in your world community, the issue of, possible, of the possibility of directional Venezuelan forces may attempt to try to take over the Venezuelan embassy sometime during this week. They're projecting dates maybe April 24th to 26th. Let's just talk about that a little bit in terms of what it represents. We know all embassies, they have a certain agreement with the nations in which they are located that that those embassies are property of the country, it's a sense of the country, and no one should be allowed to enter their territory without their country uh, permission. Now, in terms of they having these the reaction of Venezuelans talking about taking over this this embassy, how could that be, or how could it even take place without the facilitation of the U.S. Uh, government? Is this just another plot, another tool where we show the lawlessness of the U.S. when it comes to not willing to provide by international law? And policies. I think so. I think, and I think that is the case because it could not, it, this could not occur without the collusion and cooperation of the U.S. government. And uh, and and it shows that the U.S. Uh, as uh, has uh, you know uh, Haki had mentioned earlier, in terms of denying this investigator a visa tend to the U.S. to investigate possible U.S. war crimes, that the U.S. being the world's only superpower considers itself above the law, above international law and accountability. And, uh, and it shows a disrespect 
of the of the decisions made by the masses of the Venezuelan people. They through their own process and elections, they've chosen their leadership. It's just that uh, it's just that what it comes down to is that the U.S. government doesn't like the decision that the Venezuelan people made, and so they're trying to that that they're trying to put in, they're trying to force a puppet regime down the Venezuelan people's throat, and uh, and uh, we and uh, and it's something that 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 working people. Around the world must stand up to, because as uh, Martin Luther King Jr. so eloquently pointed out, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And uh, we and uh, you, you know we've seen that throughout history. Everywhere that uh, you know you know these acts occur, they they tend to be duplicated elsewhere in the world. You know, you know one thing. One of the things, you know, I think when we talk about lawlessness, I think it's important when we talk about U.S. lawlessness in particular. One of the things we got to understand, that's a great deal of instability that exists in, this, you know, in the system. One of the things to continue to attempt to prop up is only the fact that this, this, system, uh, this system of capitalism would exist forever. And one of the things they don't tell people, but it's certainly if you understand the role of economics and you understand the role of the Federal Reserve, Oh, even talk about even talk about the role of uh, you know changes taking place on the international level in terms of getting away from the dollar. Then it means that the system is very very precarious, which means that this kind of precariousness makes this country even more crazier. And this is the thing that I think African people have understand in society. You know, uh, when, when, when we talk about in terms of the power of the dollar, and we understand that just the power of the dollar is waning, that people understand that continuing the pursuit of the dollar is tantamount to destruction of their own economies. They simply reject the dollar, and so therefore they create new ways, uh, new revenues, uh, new ways in terms of new currencies they utilize in terms of making sure they conduct business. You're effectively, you know, living themselves at the dollar. Well, that means fundamentally it means a real problem for the United States government, which means it creates a certain amount of instability for the U.S. government. And because of this instability, it drives them crazy. And so they're desperate. So they, they, law doesn't mean anything at all. So one of the things the first rule of law is that, you know, all laws go out the, out, out the window. You, you don't pay attention to laws. And so when we talk about this lawlessness in, in, in the United States, we have to understand it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a direct result of the curseness that the system feels as they understand that this thing is on its way out. Of course, we understand that they're going to take down a lot of people with them in terms of, you know, uh, as this thing falls. They understand inevitably it's going to fall because, you know, under its own contradictions, it cannot, it, cannot, it cannot continue to exist. They understand that. And so when we talk about this transfer of wealth from the poorest sector to the wealthiest people, when we talk about tax cuts, when we talk about $1.7 trillion for the richest, richest people in society, they clearly they understand that the wealth is going to get there as why the society still exists. They understand fundamentalism in decline. They, they know that. But it's important that African people understand because it's in decline, African people become African people are perceived as, as, as the enemy. They have to be perceived as the enemy because you have to give people a scapegoat. You know, people understood you know, you know, qualitatively or, or even qualitatively, how the system works. And they will understand that the system is geared toward the enhancement of wealth and power for the few at the expense of the many. But they can't, they can't allow people to come to that, that understand in terms of how the system is, is formatted, how, how, it actually, how it actually exists. So, therefore, they have to give people a scapegoat. African people have always conveniently served as a scapegoat. 
And this is the problem. No matter how patriotic you are as an African person in America, no matter how much you wave, you, you salute the flag in America, no matter how much you, you, you know, you thank God for America, irrespective of all of that, someone must be the scapegoat. But a scapegoat is going to be African people. And African people are scapegoated simply because of the curses that exist in society. And if we don't fundamentally understand the relationship between the insanity of the system and the uh, kind of things that this government does, then we fail to understand just how a pearl and pearl our situation is in America. This is why it's so important that we understand economics. So when we, when we talk, when we read economics and we, and we ask ourselves, so why would you give billions of dollars to people who don't need it, but in fact, if you give it to poor people, then poor people will be in a position to actually spend it or actually to, to stimulate the economy, which is good for everybody, not only creating jobs, but also in terms of making it possible for people to save. So isn't that those good things? Well, as far as people in power are concerned, and this is the thing that Robert Wright talks about a lot, the former labor secretary uh, under, um, under, um, under Obama, one of the things that they understand that there's no way conceivable for them to, to maintain power and control if, in fact, things are relatively equal. And so, therefore, their mission is to, to, to maintain power at all costs. How do you maintain power? Well, simply, essentially by making it impossible for other people to achieve power. And so, therefore, if you give people a scapegoat, uh, then people never get to, get, get to the realization that, you know what, the real problem is those people with the power. They're the problem. It's not the poor people they're important us to. It's those rich people in positions of power. As a matter of fact, you, back in the 16th century, remember Bacon's Rebellion right here in Virginia, where, uh, where, where Africans and white people, working class whites and Africans actually worked together? They understood that the problem was that person, those white people in the big white houses, they actually worked together. It was that point that white folks being understood and said, you know what, we have to form as much racism as we possibly can in society because we've got to keep those Africans, those white people, poor white folks, from working together because if they work together, they're going to bring about change. We simply can't abide by that. We can't have that. And so this is the same well, strategy, Haki, the old strategy of dividing. Haki, can I stop you for one second? I only have one problem with, your, with that position. Go ahead. Many people, many people argue that you are advocating class warfare. Why you want to divide America like that? Yeah, well, I'm 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 not I'm not advocating class warfare. I'm telling you objective what it is. We talk about the uh, the, uh, the 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 the, the, the disparity between the, the have and the have nots. It's not something I'm saying. This is particularly proven. When you look at economic social, when you talk about regardless of the system that you look at, when you talk about political, I mean economic, political, socially, they're all all indicate the same thing. There's a huge disparity between the have and the have not. I'm not saying that it should be that way. On the contrary, I think it shouldn't be that way, but I realize that it's, it can't change unless people understand fundamentally that you've got a system in place to make sure that the disparity exists. Otherwise, if they don't understand that the system is responsible for these, 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 these discrepancies, then they tend to blame the people who are the, problem, the most powerless. And that is my fundamental concern for the African community. When they point to when they point to African people and say African people are the problem, well, you know what? Most poor people in this society don't understand how the system works. They're going to believe that African people are in fact the problem. They're not going to say, you know what? African people are not the problem. You're not going to fool me. You're not going to fool me with that. I know who the real problem is. It's not going to happen because people don't fundamentally understand how the system works. And so what I'm saying has nothing to do with terms of what I'm saying personally. It has to do with what historically is true. What is what is what is economically true? What is historically true? So I'm not saying I'm not making this up. This is this is not uh, hyperbole. I'm not making this stuff up. 
this is for anybody who wants to cut statistics and check it out for themselves to see first and foremost the disparity and how and why it exists. So it's so it's, 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 I'm not advocating class four. I'm simply saying that those positions of power are in fact setting up class four because it's the only way for them to, to survive. You know, Kaki, I concur with you. I was I put it out there because we're in the statement for those who make the argument. They are the ones who create the contradiction because they are the ones who have actually created that. I'm in, in agreement in terms of what you have stated. But right now, before we go on that station break, Brother Moses, we'd like to know are there anything that you'd like to share with, share with us or what's going on in your world and your community? Anything you'd like to share with the people? Oh, um, I, I think um, the, the situation at Howard University was on my mind and also, I um, mean, the you know the, the Venezuelan embassy uh, situation is also critical that we support the, the, the legitimate government of Venezuela. And these the, you know also you covered the um, the Notre Dame thing uh, where the wealthy um, propping up bourgeois ideology and uh, and uh, at the uh, no no um, Empathy whatsoever for the working and toiling masses, uh, and uh, this is typified in that in that Notre Dame uh, donations. Uh, those are some of the key things. I uh, thank you. Okay, before we go to our station break, panelists, I would like to get y'all to respond to the situation. And it's a situation that reminds us that we should always understand history. I think Brother Malcolm said it right. History is best to reward those who research. I was I was recently told that um, Ice Cube is attempting to buy 21 TV networks um, for creating its own mobile mass media entity, and I'm asking myself, okay, we had the Brian Allen's, we had um. With the Bill Cosby's, we have what's the brother that used to um, used to comedian, he used to host a show, and he took him out of airways for about twenty some years because he had Mr. Frank on the show. What's the name? A senior hall, Robert Johnson. A senior hall, a senior hall. When I heard that, I was thinking about those individuals who also had that same dream. And also, we got Oprah Winfrey. Because they are forced her to sell off a lot of her stuff and undermine her, her, uh, her media uh, entity. What do you think the response of the power to be in terms of responding to Ice, Ice, Ice Cube aspiration or want to own a conglomerate dealing in the media, such as the one he's trying to pursue? What do you think that response is going to be, even though he may have the money? Have we seen the story before? Yes, and I think it's going to run into a lot of opposition, primarily because of the the, the monopolistic nature of capitalism. And another, uh, and uh, and uh, there's a certain amount of ruthlessness associated with capitalism that I don't think people uh, that I don't think you, you know uh, people generally understand. And that is monopolistic uh, 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 nature. You cannot simply, pl- uh, if you pl- 
play by the rules of the game allegedly. If, um, and, and as Haki pointed out earlier, capitalists operate as a group, generally. And if you try to play by the rules of the games, as you understand it, they'll change the rules on you in a heartbeat. And uh, and they'll uh, and they'll find ways to undermine your credibility, as they did with uh, you know uh, uh, you know Bill Cosby, uh, Bob Johnson, or they'll or they'll simply buy you off. And if you have that that mindset, then you can uh, you, you know be bought off, especially if you have an individualistic mindset. And uh, so, uh, so, so actually, uh, you know, playing the game uh, plays into the interests of the uh, of the ruling capitalist class generally. And so that uh, you know, if he uh, if Ice Cube does not play according uh, to the rules that have been laid out by uh, the existing media conglomerates like Disney. Uh, Fox, uh, Viacom, etc. Uh, you know he's. Uh, you know uh, th- they're probably moved to crush him. Yeah, I, 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 I don't see um, Ice Cube being successful at uh, his attempt. You know to uh, create a media empire. I, I applaud him for his efforts. Uh, the thing is that you have to understand. Ice Cube, uh, like Bill Cosby, uh, like Oprah, he's very he, he's he's extremely political. He's very intelligent, so he understands clearly in terms of you know how the system works, how his, how the system is organized. So he understands. So he understands the role in terms of education or, or communications in terms of in, you know destroying his mindset existing so many people, uh, which which is geared towards you know allowing that exploitation to take place. So here's so his political understanding of the world uh, means that. He, he's an implicit threat to those positions of power. Uh, the same reason they denied uh, Bill Cosby was the fact that to give you have Bill Cosby running a network like NBC gives you other access to to means and means of minds, and those minds you don't want to have clarity. You want those minds to be befuddled with all kind of nonsense because it's easy to control a mind that doesn't have any information inside of it, and so therefore that's what they want. Ice Cube would probably he would probably create a situation which would become extremely educational, ed- educational, uh, you know, for the masses of people in society, and that's precisely in, in opposition to the interests of the ruling class. And so, therefore, I don't see them doing that. I think first and foremost, what they can do is they can try to raise the price so high that it's simply unachievable. But if for some reason he get with other rich Africans and he said, okay, we have got the funds, we're ready to roll, they'll probably turn around and say, well, you know what? We changed our minds. We decided we're not going to sell it. We're not. We're not going to. We're not going to make that possible because of A, B, and C. So I think that. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's not in their interest to do so. I mean, I. I mean, I would wish him, wish him much luck in terms of achieving that. Uh, but navigating the minefield is going to be extremely difficult. I mean, the kind of uh, uh, the kind of um, connections uh, with people that you would need in terms of making that a reality. It's going to be very tough for him to do, extremely tough for him to do, but I encourage him in his effort at least trying. You know, it reminds me of the lessons of not recognizing what full goal is. I think it's, we assume, again, money is everything. Once we acquire a certain amount of money, we lose the reality of our history and lessons that came before us. 
say what's requiring money is put us in a reality where we can truly do as we please and as we want. But it's real strange when you look at how capitalism works when it comes to African people. That reality doesn't exist. Because for me, again, the question becomes, no matter how wealthy you are, you are not going to play and dictate and, and, and produce under this capitalist system the same way the Europeans do. It doesn't really exist, and we still falling for this food goal. But anyway, panelists, what we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for the calls, and when we come back, we will go into our theme for the night. What is it that you don't understand? And we may want to say this to my brother, who think that because they have plenty of money, you are not free. What is it that you don't understand? We'll be right back. This is Africa on the move. We are at war. Oh, Lord, what is 
Africa on the Move. You listen to Wall. One of the things that particular song has in terms of its lyrics is that Wall can only take life but not give it. And I'm not quite sure about that because sometime in life, in order to have peace, you must go into war. So, panelists, before we go into our transition of our theme tonight, what is it that you don't understand? I'm just interested in your response about this question of war. There are sometimes it's a necessity to have to go to war in order for your existence, which will allow you to have a future. So what do y'all make about the statement, war only takes away but cannot produce a guilt? It depends upon the purpose of the war. I mean, there are all kinds of wars. There are, uh, you know, that there are uh, liberation wars, there are revolutionary wars, uh, there are wars, you know, to, to uh, you know, you know, to, to seize other people's land, and um, and um, you know, and uh, some and and sometimes war is necessary in order to preserve your existence against uh, uh, forces that want to take that away. And the first law of survival is, uh, you know, one of the, uh, the, the first, uh, one of the rules of uh, survival is uh, self-preservation. And uh, Africans have been at war. Of some sort of another for centuries. You know. Yeah. Well, uh, let, me, let me. Go ahead, Kate. Go ahead. Yeah. You know. Let me. Let me. Let me give you a a, a, a simple analogy uh, to respond to your question. Um, as a kid, I I uh, remember one time um, the, uh, the 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 um, the bully, one of the neighborhood bullies, uh, you know, he would uh, take my uh, milk money. And so one time I was on the way home, and he came behind me, and he was, and he said to me, he said, you, you make sure you bring more money tomorrow. Uh, I, w- I want a nickel. I want a dime this time. And then he pushed me. And I just walked, I walked away, and I, my father was looking out the window. He got off from work early that day. He looking out the window. And he came and he said, son, what's going on? I said, well, he won't give me my milk money, you know, and he told me I got to give him 10 cents a mile or else he'll beat me up. My father said, and what are you respond? You know, and my father said, what did you do? I said, I came to the house. I said, because, you know, I don't, I don't supposed to fight. I'm told I'm not supposed to fight. Uh, my father said, son, you know what, that's, that's fine. I don't want you to fight for no reason at all. But sometimes you have to take a stand. He said, now, this is what you're going to do. You go out there. You confront him. Don't say a word. Just go up to him. And you, you hit him as hard as you can. Hit him in the face as hard as you can. And my father said, go. So I went around. I walked up to the guy. Bang! You know, knocked him out. You know, let me, let me tell you something. You know what I mean? Since that, since that happened, you know, I will go to school. This guy will leave me alone. He, you know, he will leave me alone. I learned a very valuable lesson. Then he started picking on other people. I learned a very valuable lesson. Sometimes you have to stand up to, to bullies. Uh, you know, sometimes it's just the situation is unavoidable. Sometimes, you know, like one of the things when people talk about something, you know, I'm a pacifist. I don't believe in violence. Well, I don't believe in violence either. But if you challenge me, I'm not going to back down. Because if I back down, then I know I've already lost. So I'm not going to do that. And so sometimes you have to realize that your war is the only way 
sometimes to survive. I mean, it's, it's, it's a real paradox. You know, if you could just reason with people, then there would be no need in terms of confrontation. You could just reason, and people say, oh, I see your point. I understand. It doesn't work that way in the real world. Human beings don't operate like that. If you feel they can take advantage of you and, you simply, and you're complicitous in your own uh, exploitation, if you allow that to happen, then you can expect more of the exploitation to come your way. Until you get to the point you say, you know what, I'm going to be a human being. You know, my humanity is more important than anything that you have to offer, and I'm going to take a stand because my humanity is that important. When you get to that point, as Malcolm said, by any means necessary, once you're at that point, then no adversary, no enemies of, you know, of the community understand that people are willing to do whatever it takes in terms of being free. But you've got to first and foremost understand the nature of human beings, understanding that reasoning doesn't always work. In fact, if we, if we have, in fact when you talk about reasoning, when you look at the, the role of the African church you know, in the community in terms of trying to reason with those issues of power, then one of the certain reasons that they haven't been very effective in terms of persuading those positions of power, you know, that the things need to change for the betterment of the whole society. So at some point you have some point you have to take a stand, Brother Africa. I don't think I'm still getting around that. So, you know, uh, it's just one of those things which nobody would nobody openly or no one wants to advocate. It's just a fact of life that sometimes you have to take a stand and there's just no getting around that. And that's just a cold reality. Yeah, Brother Hackey, you remind me of a statement by Brother Malcolm X stated, and I just paraphrasing it. He made a statement that he said many times we're in the establishment uh, of knowledge, you know, African leadership or or give credit to an African individual. And normally one of the individuals who really gets not who really get nothing resolved, you know. So it's really really interesting. I thought it was really interesting in terms of raising that. And this last point before we get to that thing, I do want to give people something to think about and get your response real quickly. I was looking at some numbers from the U.S. Department, and um, we were looking at the government spending in 2016. They spent over $5,852,079,825,000 in U.S. spending, government spending, right, for the year 2016. And out of all that money, if you look at the amount of money the African community had access to or, or had any kind of relationship with receiving it, it's add up to less than one half of one percent. What do you make up that that reality? Is that a form of economic war against the African community? I think it is. Um, there's no question in the fact that uh, that we uh, don't control. We're not. We don't control any resources that are needed by society as a whole. And uh, and uh, and and let me make it clear. I'm not uh, saying that we don't participate. We do participate, but there is the difference between participation and actual control. We don't control any resources that this society needs to survive. All of the resources that we have access to are controlled by other people. Primarily because we are disorganized and our homeland is not free. And uh, that's why we, we don't control any, uh, any resources. Now, uh, now our, our motherland, Africa, has a lot of the resources that, uh, that, that, that capitalist society needs in order to survive. But right now, because 
we're we're disorganized and uh, oppressed by capitalism. We don't control any of it. Brother Haki, they said they're giving us too much money, Africa, in this country. They're out of $5 trillion. We don't get less than one half of 1% of it. Is that an ACAWA? Why they can pay, we can play? It, it 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 is an act of war, and unfortunately, it's 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 been couched in such a way that uh, people believe that uh, this um, uh, poor access to resources has a lot to do in terms of some kind of adequacy that exists among African people. Often they say that we don't work hard enough, but in fact, when you look at the history of African people, nobody worked hard in African people. Uh, so we have a lot of history in terms of working hard, but the but we don't enjoy the fruits of our labor. So it's clearly there was a calculated, uh, a systematic approach in terms of making sure that African people don't have access to wealth. In fact, one of the things they've been busy doing uh, historically and they do currently is that when we talk about land, which represents uh, a major asset in terms of uh, resources, uh, they've been systematically creating new rules to make sure that they effectively take the land from African people. So as, so at one point, African people own, own a lot of land in America. Now that number is dwindled down to a fraction of a percentage. Uh, in other words, the kind of wealth that historically African people had access to was no longer uh, uh, available. So clearly, it was a systematic approach in making sure that um, people don't have African people don't have access to wealth. And so I'm not surprised. We talk about five trillion dollars. That that in fact that we only a smidgen of 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 the of the, uh, of, the uh, of you know of, of that of that amount of money. I think one of the things, brother Africa, is when you look at the in terms of. Um, uh, you know, the American dream, and people talk about if you know, if you go to school, you learn, you know, you work hard, then you can succeed. Well, one of the things they don't talk about is the fact that African people um, disproportionately have been excelling in terms of higher education. Uh, so clearly, if you talk just in terms of excelling in terms of higher education, you think that theoretically the numbers in terms of, in terms of access to earnings will be greater. But on the contrary, they're actually declining. So the question is, so what is, what is happening here? And so often one of the tricks that they employ is that we talk about, you know, salaries of African people. They take the, take the few billionaires you got in society and you average everybody else into that number. Of course, it gives you an inflated number in terms of earnings. But, in fact, uh, when you look at it in terms of, um, in terms of the economy, and clearly the, act, the money that African people have access to is very, very minuscule. And so the question is, is this some kind of, sh- some kind of uh, uh, um, something that's fundamentally lacking in African people, or is it something that's happening systematically? So I think we have to understand that this is something that systematically is being done. And this is why the question in terms of reparations become extremely important, because one of, the, one of the ways in terms of systemically addressing this issue in terms of disparity between uh, white and black folks you know, in America is that this, 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 this situation where historically they've always uh, uh, taken our labor you know, for free and not, and not being compensated for it could be addressed in terms of, uh, you know, um, you know, when we talk about uh, this whole question around, uh, you know, actually, you know, receiving reparations. So I, I think that, uh, yeah, I'm not surprised at all, Brother Africa, that, that, that in fact that is, that is consistent with, with everything that happens in society. So the kind of uh, the, 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 the poor wages, irrespective of your education level, irrespective of how much experience you have, uh, reflect, uh, reflects poorly when it comes to, you know, uh, 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 when, statistically, we talk about how do African people fare in society. So I'm not surprised. It's all systemic. It's all part of the system. And it is an act of war. And this is what people don't understand about war, because by essentially denying your resources, what they're saying is that they're making it impossible for you to fight back. And that's what this is all about. Brother Moses, 
Uh, we can play while they can pay. You talking about five trillion, eight hundred fifty-two billion, seventy-nine million, eight hundred twenty-five thousand dollars was spent by the U.S. government during 2016, and we can get no more than a half or one percent of that at most. What you make of that, brother Moses? I think the facts speak for themselves. We are actually being played, played and exploited, and uh, repressed. And um, there's an active active agenda to deny us opportunities um, for wealth. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I say class struggle is on the agenda that basically, you know, we have, we have to look at this thing from the standpoint of the have and the have-nots and uh, why they are keeping us from having and that they are actively – Carrying out class warfare, I think who was it? Uh, Buffett or somebody said there's class warfare going on in America, and we're winning. Um, so you know we we have to we have to recognize that uh, that you know there is power in the class, and that as working people we we have a, a unity and strength, and uh, we have to take control of this situation and. Uh, and 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 take the resources away from the wealthy and to redistribute it into a, a fair system of government, and uh, that's the that's the agenda. Uh, I don't see any way around that. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Moses. All right, panelists, let's move forward to our first part of at least a two-part series on what is it that you don't understand. Now, when I read this article, titles, Californians keep a secret list of criminal cops, but say you can't have it. I think you fall in that category. What is it that you don't understand? When I read this article, let me just share something uh, with our listening audience. It's real interesting. This article was uh, written by Robert Lewis and Jason Paladino. It was from the University of Berkeley campus, published on the 26th of February, 2019. Entitled, Californians Keep a Secret List of Criminal Cops, but says you can't have it. Their crimes range from shoplifting to embezzlement to murder. Some of them molested kids and downloaded child pornography. Others beat their wives, girlfriends, and children. The one thing they all had in common was a badge. Thousands of California law enforcement officers have been convicted of a crime in the past decade, according to records released by a public agency that sets standards for officers in the Golden State. The revelations are alarming, but the state top cops said Californians don't have a right to see them. In fact, Attorney General Xavier Xavier Pacino warned two Beverly-based reporters that simply possessing this never-before-publicly-released list of convicted cops in a, is in a violation of the law. Now, you know, there has been an outcry for more uh, police accountability. And one way you can do this is by to keep records to see the behaviors of the police officers and what they have or have not done in the community. 
any people, any community of goodwill who want to resolve the war between police officers and their community, there seems to be a, a, a disconnect here. What is it that you, you don't understand in terms of if someone say that we shouldn't keep records, what are they saying to us, panelists? Respond to me, Brother Anthony. Yeah. Well, uh, well, the point of keeping records is to uh, you know, should be to uh, to release them to public. In other, in other words, what's the point of of keeping this documentation of of these convictions if you're not gonna, you know, hold police accountable? And um, you know, in any other occupation. In which people are, uh, you know, are, are convicted of uh, uh, of crimes, their records aren't kept secret, and um, and neither should, uh, uh, you, you know, should uh, the, the police. But in this society, the uh, police protect the property of the ruling class, and 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 it's in the interest of the ruling class to uh, you know to protect those that protect their property regardless of the abuses that are heaped upon the masses of the people Brother Keith what is it that you don't understand when someone advocate that they should not have access to records of police behavior matter of fact I would go further I'd like for you to speak to this paper reported that they have police officers who have killed people, who have robbed banks, who have done embezzlement. Why do you still operate to being a police officer? You know, you know, one of the things, you know, Brother Africa, we, we talk about the fact, we talk about, and let's talk about 12,000 people. Uh, fortunately, the loose agency decided that they're not going to destroy those lists, that they're going to hold on to them, but they have yet to release the names of all 12,000 individuals on that list. Now, here's the problem. Now, this is according to the Attorney General. Uh, he stated, I quote, once you release the confidential documents, you can't take it back, uh, end quote. Well, the irony of that statement is that these individuals committed these horrific crimes that you alluded to. In fact, they forfeit their right to be police officers. The mere fact that they don't want to, to, to divulge that list suggests possibly that a lot of these 12,000, a lot of these people on the list are still police officers, despite the kind of crimes they committed. Exactly. I think that is the reason why they are, they, they, the Attorney General is afraid to release that list, because then you see the level of corruption, uh, level of collusion that exists in the, in the police agencies, not only California, but throughout the world. But I think one thing is important, Brother Africa, one of the things is when we talk about you know, personality, I think it's important that we talk about what it is in terms of being a cop, what are they looking for in terms of uh, being a cop. Uh, they're not looking for the most, the, 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 the sharpest people in the world. In fact, there was a situation in California itself in which a man was denied his right to be a police officer because he was too intelligent. So they're looking for a particular mindset in terms of police officers. So I'm not surprised that you have these, these, these murder of crimes being committed by police officers because, in fact, the kind of people that you, that, you, that you want to attract are more predisposed to do those kind of things. So I'm not surprised at all that that would happen. Uh, one of the things I remember in, in, in New York City, I walking down the street in the Bronx and watching um, the cops who pull up with prostitutes and take them in the back of their car and do their thing and then let them go. Well, the whole notion was that, well, in order for you to do business, and the prostitutes would tell you in order for them to do their business, they had to take care of the cops. 
And so this kind of mindset was prevalent, you know, in, in the police department. And the thing is that everybody was aware that it existed, but nobody was confronted. That's part of the perks in terms of being a police officer. But I think more importantly, Brother Africa, one thing we have to keep in mind also is that one thing to understand that we ask these men and women in uniform uh, to actually be the front line uh, uh, for, wealth, for, for wealth. And so, therefore, in protecting wealth, they're called upon to do all kinds of things to make sure that the, 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 the rebel rousers, the masses of people, are maintained, are maintained, maintained under control. And so by keeping them control, under control, that means you do any and everything to them as long as you keep them under control. We don't care what you do, how you do it, you know, as long as you do it. And so I think that when you got that kind of mindset, you got people willing to actually do that. Uh, people are predisposed to, 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 to um, uh, def- give deference to, to authority. You know, I think you got those kind of people willing to do any and everything. So being surprised at these kind of crimes that they committed, I'm not surprised at all. And as far as drug dealing is concerned, Brother Africa, Anybody can tell you, any big city, I can tell you personally in New York, I can tell you, when it comes to drug dealers, some of the biggest drug dealers uh, in New York uh, are police officers. There was a case with Larry Davis. He changed names to Adam Abdul-Hakim, and he got sent to prison for life. Uh, and this brother uh, was provided a, 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 a rocket launcher by the New York City Police Department to protect his drug trade. This brother was making a million dollars a day. And the reason why he was able to do that because that rocket launcher, because he threatened other drug dealers, like, not only can I kill you, but I can take out a whole block. So you don't want to mess with me. And the drug dealers respected that power. And ultimately what happened was the cops got greedy. They came to his house to kill him because he wouldn't give them their fair share of the, of the loot. And so they tried to kill him, and he escaped. And he got he, eventually they caught him, and he explained what was going on. They put him in protective custody. He went to trial, and he exposed exactly what the cops were doing. Well, needless to say, not a damn one of those cops went to jail. Not a damn one was indicted, and so business as usual. So clearly the situation uh, in California where they seek to to, create, to uh, push forward this bill, Senate Bill 41421, I wish them all the luck in the world, but, but, but history tells me that that bill is not going to go anywhere, that law enforcement, not just in California, but throughout the country, are going to fight precipitously to make sure that this bill never sees the light of day. And so, unfortunately... That's just part of the, what it is in terms of law enforcement. And brother Moses, what you make of this thing? Is is it that we have institutionalized uh, police department to be untouchable? What, what what's your thoughts on this? Well, once again, the police are there to protect and uh, defend the rights of the ruling class, uh, the bourgeoisie, the owning property owners, and uh, and they are not there to to protect and serve the masses of people, per se. Um, so, we, you know, the fact that they they are looking out for each other and, uh, um, you know, the blue code, you got each other's back, and they, and they have a code of silence when it comes to their corruption and uh, their criminal activity. Um, this is, this is uh, America. This is capitalism. This is the way it's. It's been going since slavery, and this is the way it's still going today. Um, the, the property class uh, um, own and uh, and uh, employ the police department. Um, you know they're not there to serve us, and, and that's just the bottom line. Thank you. So, brother. Anthony Hackey, I'd like to ask y'all this question coming from this article where I'm trying to figure out what is it that I don't understand. 
it is my understanding that federal laws trump state state laws. Therefore, if they saying as a reporter, the First Amendment giving the constitutional right to this information and to have it and to use it, why would it be why would they feel intimidated by a perceived state law saying you can't do it? Can y'all speak to that dynamic or how legalism can be used as a tool to continue to, no matter what the situation is, to make sure the state comes on top? Mm. Yeah, well, I think, I think, it's, I think it's, Go ahead, Doug. Go, go ahead, Hockey. All right. Yeah, well, I, 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 I was... Go, go ahead, ahead, Anthony. All right, go ahead, Anthony, 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 you first. Okay, yeah. No, I think what it is is the fact that um that the uh, that that the attorney general is trying to look out for the interests of uh, of the police. And that uh and that overrides the uh the rights of uh of uh, people to access uh to information which which is laid out by the first amendment. And um and I th- and I think that and I think that's where that's where the contradiction lies, uh, you know, in the in the fact that uh, that 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 the, inter- the the protecting police from scrutiny overrides the right of people to have information about who is uh, 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 who, who is uh, uh, who, who, where the corruption lies at in the police department. You're right, Brother Africa. Uh, there, there, there is a, a, a system in place in which federal law supersedes state law. Uh, but the problem is this. We're talking about, you know, uh, information. You know, we're talking about these, these um, news organizations, you know, have access to the information. The problem is that we have to understand that these news organizations are not immune from pressure from the advertisers. So if the law enforcement authority and the unions go to these advertisers and say, listen, these people are creating problems. They can create, they're going to they're going to they're possibly going to release this list, and we think it's bad, you know, for the law enforcement community. And what can you do in terms of preventing that from happening? Well, they would simply go to these news organizations and say, "Listen, we understand you got a job to do, but we feel that's not the best interest of society for you to release that information. And so, if we don't, our position is this: we'll continue to support you, but if you release that information, we've got another recourse but to drop you. Well, what do you think these news organizations are going to do? They don't care about federal law saying they have a right under the First Amendment, you know, to release that information. They're going to hold on to the information. We're, gonna, we're not going to see the information. After all, think about it. They had information. They released some information, but most of the information they held. So, so what were they waiting for? Well, they, 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 my guess is, if I was to surmise, I would say that perhaps they were thinking that at some point, down, you know, immediately down the road, what's going to happen is that they're going to be approached by advertisers because they'll be pressured by the law enforcement to tell them not to release that information. So I think that might account for why they didn't release all the information as opposed to just a little bit of information in terms of some of the uh, corrupt cops uh, uh, on this list. So I think that the question in terms of federal versus state, I think it's really irrelevant because we talk, I'm talking about informal power that takes place in society. So a lot of stuff that takes place when we talk about laws takes place behind the scenes. It has nothing to do with constitutionality. It has nothing to do in terms of what's proper in terms of law. It has more to do in terms of power who have access to money to bribe other people to get things done that they want done. So this is a fundamental problem that we're having. So I think the, the federal versus state is not really an issue. The issue is, 
is whether or not uh, these individuals are willing, you know, to pay the price by releasing this information. My guess is, based upon history, is that these organizations are simply not going to do that because it's simply too profitable to go along, you know, with the status quo. You know, Brother Hackey, you sort of, you, you sort of went down the lane that I was going to take you next, but I still would like for the panelists to respond to this. It says that Berkeley journalists chose not to publish the entire list until they could spend more time reporting to avoid misidentifying people among the nearly 12,000 names in the document, says John Temple, director of the investigative reporting program. Is that just, do you accept that, that, that rationale for not publishing the list? And they won't make sure to investigate this list to avoid misidentifying people? Well, they're just a, a cop out, and it gave into pressure to to the other forces. No, it, it was it's essentially what it is is a game. They understand how the game is played. In fact, they can use that list in terms of actually approaching advertisers for more advertising revenue because you know they have this valuable information, and it, certainly they don't want this information to get out. So when they post it, when these news organizations post these advertisers, they say, listen. Uh, we, 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 we think about holding this information, you know, but, uh, you know, we really need X, Y, and D dollars because, you know, we, we lose the money by not releasing the story. But advertisers will say, well, you know what? We see your point. We see your dilemma. We're going to give you X amount of money for revenue, uh, for, for, for advertising revenues. So clearly uh, they understand how the game is played, and so I think that if they really was hell-bent on releasing information, they would have. Because the bottom line is this. The list was compiled on a case-by-case basis. So there's no possibility to misidentify anybody because the list was compiled on a base by base basis. Basis. It wasn't some 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 haphazard process. It was done by you know each and every cop that committed a crime was documented and the crime was was, was documented. So it's not a question in terms of making a mistake in terms of misidentifying anybody. That's not a problem. Uh, so this notion that in fact it is a problem speaks violence in terms of the kind of corruption, the kind of uh, complicity that takes place when we talk about dollars and cents particularly when it comes to the issue in terms of our right to have access to information. So this notion that they, you know, that somehow, you know, they just want to make sure they don't misjudge anybody, it's all smoke screen, it's all, it's, it's all a red herring, it's BS. But, of course, that's how the game is played. You want to take Brother Anthony? Yeah, I concur. I think what it is, I think they're just trying to buy uh, for more time, uh, you know, uh, because uh, you, you know, because I think they are caving in to uh, pressure from advertisers to suppress uh, the information that they did find. And uh, let's see, and uh, and uh, and uh, you know, there's data associated with each of the names on that list, so there isn't a possibility of misidentifying anybody. It's just that uh, it's just that I think that you know that uh, there's there's been pressure to put on the, on this uh, pub, uh, publication to suppress this information. And Brother Moses, your take on that? Yeah, I agree with what's been said. Um, this this is this is a, a, a red herring, a, a smokescreen, or whatever. Uh, uh, the people. That compiled the list, you know, should release the list. Uh, uh, this this justice delayed is justice denied, and and um, that's 
that's the situation now. The the corrupt police have to be exposed, and uh, and um, you know being complicit with not exposing them only only leads to more corruption ultimately. Thank you. All right, panel, this is what we're going to do right now. We're going to pause for the calls, and when we come back, we'd like to get you to weigh in on our next article, NATO is stronger with women on board. We're going to talk about that, and we want to try to find out what is it that you just don't understand. We'll be right back. You are listening to Africa on the Move. Africa, the host, 
and we are discussing what is it that you don't understand. That's our theme for tonight. We are moving to our next article, which is a real interesting article. It is it is titled NATO is stronger with women on board. There was a real interesting article that was published on the eighth of March, two thousand nineteen. I'd like to read its opening and panelists. I'd like for y'all to respond to the opening. Something is missing from this picture. Can you tell me what's missing from this picture? It says that challenges to our collective security are not evenly perceived among both women and men. In the last pre-research center, Global Threat Perception Report, women across the globe, especially in NATO countries, show significant more concern about key security challenges like ISIS or North Korea than men. What did y'all take and read from that statement? Read that statement again, Brother Africa. It says that challenges to our collective security are not evenly perceived among both women and men. In the last Pew Research Center Global Threat Perception Report, women across the globe, especially in NATO countries, show significant more concern about key security key security challenges like ISIS or North Korea than men. What do you make of that statement? I don't know. It strikes me as a bit disingenuous, and, and I, I'll tell you why. Uh, one of the things is that, you know, women, uh, by virtue of, you know, having children, they're closer to life, and so they understand the value of life. Even the most conservative woman uh, has a, a better understanding of life than men do. So there's a notion, in fact, that uh, that ISIS is such a, a particular concern to, to, to women, I, I find problematic because, if, number one, what is ISIS doing in terms of potentially sacrificing, uh, undermining the, the longevity of life of, of, of millions and millions of children? ISIS doesn't have that kind of power. It, 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 so we're talking about some regional formation, by the way, which was created by the CIA, uh, that, in fact, is, is going around killing some individuals, but not on a mass level. It's a notion that women will be particularly concerned about ISIS, uh, for me, raises a red flag. And I'm thinking that this doesn't sound right. It sounds like a more like a propaganda piece. And one of the things, you know, Brother Africa, when I read this piece, when they talk about uh, a peaceful, stable, and democratic political order through security in terms of military and defense infrastructure, I say, wow, this is a sick piece of propaganda. Because the whole notion that what they're saying is, in essence is that the kind of program that's carried out by the U.S. government and Western nations in terms of, you know, um, a globalized economy, which means, you know, all the kind of mass destruction that you're seeing on a mass scale all around the world, is somehow justified because it, because it, in fact, defends democracy around the world. So the mere fact that women are somehow, uh, you know, ill-informed when it comes to this mass casualties that are taking place around the world, I think is somewhat disingenuous. I think on the, on, the, on the contrary, I think women very much understand the kind of destruction that has taken place not only in America but throughout the world. So I think for them to support, you know, a war on its face, I think for me is problematic. So I, always, I see this piece as a propaganda piece. Professor, your response to the statement read? Yes, um, I uh, I concur with the points Haki made. I see that as this as a propaganda piece, uh, mainly because of the words security, democracy. You know, in what context 
and um, you know, and and uh, see that in order to interpret this piece uh, correctly, you know, there has to be a, a lot of uh, reading between the lines has to be done. And uh, let's see, and uh, let's see, things like securing a peaceful, stable, and democratic political order in terms of military and defense. You know, sounds like maintaining, uh, you know, trying to maintain, uh, you know, the imperialist domination of the world as it is presently. And when they t- when they use terms like, um, you know, the terrain situations, terms like terrorism, uh, you know, that they're talking about the, you know, uh, people that are trying to counter. Uh, the imperialist system that is uh, that that is oppressing the masses of people around the world. But uh, you, know, you know, but without you know, without you know, without go ahead. Uh, no, without uh, you know, uh, without other uh, you know sources of information or. Or a, or a, a certain political outlook, you would not be able to arrive at that conclusion. You know, I think in terms of that statement, it shows how racist NATO is in terms of its outlook of the world. Because one of the things they highlight in that statement is the emphasis is on NATO countries, women who only win the confine of NATO countries. Now, who are the countries that make up NATO? They're basically your European countries. So they're really talking about European women and not other women, women of other races and nationalities. And this whole question in terms of strategy, why at this particular time there seems to be an emphasis to want women more involvement? What can that really mean in the long run, panelists? Why do you think NATO now is looking at this question? How do we draw women more into, into this game? I think a Go ahead, Anthony. Yeah, I was going to say that um, I think a part of it is the fact that women historically are the are, 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 are the are the ones that perpetuate the cultural values of society, and that in order for uh, in order for the ideas of capitalism to be perpetuated. Uh, needs the involvement of uh, of women, partly for that reason. And uh, partly because they, they, uh, you know, uh, they want to appeal more. Uh, I think it's a ploy to get more women into the military, also. Yeah, you know, I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm, I got sort of a, a dual understanding of this. You know, one of the things is that, you know, I think it's a misdirection play. I think what they're doing is, is essentially indirectly posing a challenge to men. In other words, what they're saying is, damn, if women can understand the complexity of, you know, foreign policy in terms of what's going on in the world, why can't you? So I think that's, that's part of what they're doing, part of the rationale in terms of what they're doing. But aside from that, I think in, in respect to, um, in terms of this appeal to women in the NATO coalition, uh, particularly in Western nations, I think one of the things that they talked about security being including our culture, and the question is, Brother Africa, what culture are they talking about? In America, what culture are you talking about? There are many cultures. What, what culture, what makes it uniquely Western? Uh, nobody has ever defined what makes it a uniquely Western culture. Of course, people give some, um, some um, 
usually cite some um, antiquated notion that, in fact, Western culture means, you know, uh, you know the, the, the highest level of creativity. Well, of course, when you look at society's journey throughout the world, they're all uh, reflections of creativity. And when you look at Africa, Africa's epitome of creativity in terms of not only being the origin of human beings, but also in terms of the kind of things Africa gave to the world because, you know, Africa is the center of the world. So this notion in terms of cultural values in terms of, and Brother Africa alluded to this, it's important because women, in fact, have the children. So if you can teach them to be war hawks, to be pro-war, then they're going to teach their children to be pro-war. At least that's the proper rationale. Also, they talk about values. What are Western values? Again, it's it, it, vague terms, but what, is, what does that mean? They also talk about freedom of speech. Well, freedom of speech for who? Well, does freedom of speech mean uh, of Julian Assange? What about his freedom of speech? Uh, why is this freedom of speech entailed? I mean, so this question in terms of, you know, a lot of these things that they're trying to get at in terms of being encouraging women to be part of speaks more to the propaganda piece. It speaks less in terms of their true motivation, which is to uh, legitimize NATO, uh, and, and, and less to the reality that, uh, you know, um, you know um, they want more and more, increasingly more and more women to actually enjoy in this whole notion in terms of NATO being vital to, to the Western security. You could also look at it in terms of, so you also may look, be looking at the demographic inside these countries and realize another tool for population control and undesirable sectors. There are groupings of women in these countries. They want to find other ways to um, uh, um, find ways to, uh, to to make them disappear. What's a better way to do this than to drag them into war situations? And also to divide them among themselves. Like I stated earlier, the issue of European women's, and then you're talking about women of, 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 I hate to use the term, of color, non-European women. They will have them on the battlefield fighting each other. And what they don't have, in, what they do have in common, most of them, is they're all part of an exploited class by the rich and by the rich and wealth, the rich and wealth, the white, white European men who are making these policies and the decisions. So I just thought this was real interesting at this particular time. They were looking at the possibility of um, uh, including more women. And we know when they talk about women going to war, it's basically not going to be the European women. It could be non-European women in these countries. I bet you a thousand percent on that. Panelists, y'all respond to that? I think you're correct, Brother Africa. I think it's going to – and I think um, – you know, recent history has shown is that uh, is that Africans and um, other non non European people have borne the brunt of uh, the labor and uh, and and the brutalities of these wars, and uh, and and it will continue to do so until you know uh, African people get sufficiently organized. Uh, you know to change that uh, paradigm, but uh, but but uh, you know, but but I think your observations are correct. I think it is a ploy, uh, you know, to get uh, you, you know to get more women, you know, into the military in general, and uh, you know, and uh, the indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere and Africans in particular. Yeah, I, you know, Brother Africa, I, I agree with your uh, assessment of, you know, of, of NATO uh, in terms of its motivation. But one of the things, this question in terms of this, this, uh, this, this gender uh, split that exists among women, 
uh, clearly, you know, when African women take a position that they're humanists, it doesn't necessarily square with the position that most white women take. When white women talk about feminism, they're not necessarily talking about enhancement uh, benefits for white women. They're not necessarily talking about all women. Uh, certainly when it comes to the exploitation of African people, uh, white women tend to be quiet on the question between the exploitation of African people, men and women. So clearly this split already exists, and uh, whether or not it can be um, overcome remains to be seen. Unless you have some radical white women who are willing to, to, to deal with this question openly, I don't see this, this, this split uh, coming uh, uh, um, ending. So I, I think that the things that you say are absolutely correct, and I concur totally. What I can do right now, we have a caller been on the line for a while. I believe, I, I believe this is our sister. We're going to offer her an opportunity if she'd like to say a few words about this whole possibility of NATO including women into more of their plans and how it may impact our community. We'd like to bring in caller 0246. Call 0246. Yeah, we have a question or comments. 0246. Okay. I think she may not want to respond right now. But in closing, panelists, what we'll do at this point in time, I'd like each one of y'all, in terms of for y'all, give us your final thought on some of the issues that were raised today as we dealt with this question of what is it you don't understand. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for today's program. Yes, uh, I think we have to... um study uh you know the, the the history of the US more closely and more critically and also ascertain uh the events that are happening in their proper context and uh and uh be aware of the information that's being put out by the mainstream media and we must join a a, a, a political or party that is working for our people's liberation. And if you don't see one that's correct, then you're uh, uh, the, 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 then it's your duty to create your own. And upcoming African Liberation Day, can you make that announcement, yes. please? Sure. Uh, the All African People's Revolutionary Party (GC) is organizing. African Liberation Day in Palestine Day 2019. Our theme is Generations of Resistance and Revolts, Rebellions and Revolutions as Illuminated in Cuba, Haiti, Libya, Palestine, and Venezuela. Saturday, May 18th, 2019, 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. It's going to be a revolutionary podcast symposium. Uh, for more information, please call 202-239-2676 or, or check our website on a regular basis for more information on how to link. And the website is? The website is www.a-aprp-gc.org. Thank you, Brother Andrew, for your contributions. To today's program Brother Haki, give me your final thoughts for tonight And your Announcements as well A couple of things First, African American Association will do a travel The road of liberation and freedom to Cuba We'll be going to Guantanamo, Santiago de Cuba And Havana, this trip takes place July 24th to July 31st uh, For more information We actually call us at 
714-914-9435. Or email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, number two, at gmail.com. We encourage people to go to Cuba to see for themselves, you know, what Cuba's all about. I think it's important because one of the things that, you know, uh, you know, um, often we talk about the role of institutions. And I think for people to see concretely, you know, how this institution actually impact on people by actually talking to Cubans, then you get a better sense in terms of the kind of institutions that perhaps could evolve in America, which make the population uh, and put population much better light. So we encourage people to go first and see for themselves what Cuba is all about. Uh, and my second thing in terms of today's program, I think, Brother Africa, you know, there's, there's no question about it. The situation for African people, working class people in society is critical. The question is whether or not uh, working class people, whether be the white, black, or whatever, can bridge the divide uh, between the you know various sectors you know of the working uh, the working world. Uh, one of the things that we understand that racism plays a big role in terms of pitting one one pe- people against one another. My concern is that given a level of ignorance that pervades the society, that is, it makes it all too convenient for the government to manipulate large segments of the population against other segments of the population. So when we talk about a large segment of poor white people not understanding how the system how the system systematically works, that is a truism. And so therefore, it's incumbent upon, upon African people if we can get the masses of white folks to understand how the system works, that the very minimum that at least African people understand how the system works, because this is going to be quite important in terms of being able to be in a position to actually defend yourself against whatever comes down the road. So the question is, I'm not trying to deceive anybody, and I'm trying to scare anyone. I'm just trying to lay out the fact that the situation is critical and it's getting worse every day. And all you have to do is do the research for yourself. And, and that's okay for yourself what the, what the reality is. Having said that, Brother Africa, I want to wish you a good night. See you next week. Thank you, Brother Hackey, for your contributions to today's program. And to our listening audience, we'd like to thank you for tuning in and listening to our program. And we'd like to remind you to remember Without information, you cannot think, and without organization, you cannot think clearly. This is part one of a two-part series. What is it? What is it that you don't understand? We will continue the discussion. We want to encourage you to please join an organization that does something to help alleviate the suffering of your people and humanity. If you don't do that, then you are acting against the interests of your people. And therefore, you have fell into the camp of the enemy. Africa on the Move is a radio program that seeks to speak truth to power and to give you information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation. Until next time, next week, we're going to leave you with a message. My brother, dead prayers. This is you have the emergence in human society of this thing that's called the state. What is the state? The state is this organized bureaucracy. It is the police department. It is the army, the navy. It is the prison system, the courts, and what have you. This is the state. It is a repressive organization. But the state... And three well, you know, you've got to have the police, because if there were no police, look at what you'd be doing to yourselves. You know how we think, organize the hood under our chain banners. 
red, black, and green instead of gang bandanas. FBI spying on us through the radio antennas. And I'm hitting cameras in the street like watching society. With no respect for the people's right to privacy. I take a slug for the cause like Huey P. While all you fake niggas try to copy Master P. I want to be free to live. Able to have what I need to live. Bring the power back to the street where the people live. We sick of working for crumbs and filling up the prisons. Dying over money and relying on religion for help. We do for self like ants in a colony. Organize the wealth into a socialist economy. A way of life based off the common needs. And all my comrades is ready. We just spreading the seed. Shout out to black Live a third of his life in a jail cell Cause the world is controlled by the white male And the people don't never get justice And the women don't never get respected And the problems don't never get solved And the jobs don't never pay enough So the rent always be late Can you relate? No more bondage, no more political monsters, no more secret space launches. Government departments started it in the projects, material objects, thousands up in the closets. Could have been invested in the future for my comrades. Battle contacts, primitive weapons out in combat. Many never come back, pretty niggas be running with gas. Rabbit get shot in they back, then fire back. I'm tired of that. Corporations hiring blacks, denying the facts, exploiting us all over the map. That's why I write the shit I write in my rap. It's documented. I Minute. Every day of the week, I live in it, breathing it. It's more than just fucking believing it. I'm holding in ones, rolling up my sleeves and shit. It's C Lo for push ups now, many headed for one conclusion. Niggas ain't ready for revolution. Your average black male, live a third of his life in a jail cell. Cause the world is controlled by the white male. And the people don't never get justice. And the women don't never get respected. And the problems don't never get solved. And the jobs don't never pay enough So the rent always be late Can you relate? We living in a police state